Okay, so this semester we're going to talk about mere Christianity. And it's going to focus largely on the radio addresses by C.S. Lewis, but we're going to wander into some other categories because um, we're not going to shy away from what's wrong with the book because there are some errors in it. But before we do that, I want to review and expand on some of the ideas that um, we already understand and know about C.S. Lewis's distinct contribution to theology. Now, those of you who have been in this class, what is C.S. Lewis's distinct contribution? One area, specifically. That was a, it was a natural revelation. Right? Natural revelation, there you go. Um, because we're going to be talking a lot about the Tao. Well, yeah. <laughs> this is par for the course today. Yeah. <laughs> that the only one? No, I got a bucket of them. Oh, okay. The Tao. Why did he use it? It's like that's like a Chinese. Well, you know, it's really interesting because, I, I, yeah, I don't know. C.S. Lewis was not a professional theologian. He was originally a poet and a philosopher first. So as we've already discovered, like his explanation of what joy is, is very strange. Um, why he decided to use this word, I have to, I don't really know. Because it, it throws me. Because when you study philosophy, you understand that this is a, a, an idea from Chinese philosophy. Right, yeah. But then what he means by it as a way, right, the Oxford Dawn using <laughs> Chinese philosophical yeah. term, not in the way that it's supposed to be used. Uh, it's very strange. But uh, just to review, so the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, we're Protestants. Do you guys know what the Westminster Confession of Faith is? Okay. In its uh, first chapter, it says this. Of the Holy Scripture, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness and wisdom and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Now, if you've been here for any length of time already, you hear me talk about this all the time, right? Nature teaches us there is a God. Um, revelation teaches us his name. Okay, I'm not going to belabor Romans 1, 19 through 20, since I just preached about it last week. <laughs> and then we'll just refer to the sermon. Okay, Psalm 19. We, we understand this. Okay, but natural revelation teaches us the, the God's name. Okay, and, and again, I don't think I need to spend too much time on that. But... What we want to look at now is what C.S. Lewis called uh, the iconography of Revelation. Now, what's iconography? Iconography of Revelation. It's a language of images is what this means. Okay? It gives meaning to the ideas that God reveals about himself. Um, and if you think about the way that God reveals himself, he is extremely imprecise. Okay, is God a mountain? Is God a clay, right? Does he, uh, does he work with clay? Is that what he does? Is he a potter? Uh, CS, or, uh, sorry, Wilson talks about this when he's talking about, right, when you talk to unbelievers about the fact that they're just a clay pot, they're very offended by this idea. Nobody ever seems to be offended by the fact that we're diminishing God to a clay pot maker, right? No, nobody's worried about us underdoing God's glory. They're worried about us underdoing man's glory. Um, and if you think about the iconography in scriptures, um, God has no shame. 
he, he will he will belittle himself to any conceivable idea if it helps you understand it. Hmm. Now, what are what is some iconography that you guys like from the scriptures? I'll, I will wet the whistle. How about that? The, the um, a sermon series I did years ago was on a, a portion of scripture that had a big effect on me when I was converted. I, I do not believe that Jonah was a historical account in any way, shape, or form. And uh, this was the linchpin that got me to, is Je- who is Jesus? He's talking like this is true. He doesn't lie, therefore it's true. And bada bing, bada boom, in a one syllogism, I became a Christian. And, and this was literally one afternoon how it worked in my mind. Now, like, things had already been working out, obviously. But I literally sat down and at the end of a syllogism determined that I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Because he cannot lie. Now when he says the sign of Jonah, what is the sign of Jonah? This three, is days a, three days in the... Three days in the belly of the whale, right? Is that all that it means? Okay, now if, it, if we're going with iconography, and, and I think when Jesus says this, I can't imagine him not having a big smirk on his face. And he demonstrates by this how little we actually know about the scriptures. Here's a couple of examples. We all know of the whale, right? He goes down, he goes in the whale for three days, he comes up. Now, but then he gets out of the whale and he goes to Nineveh, okay? Does anyone know how big Nineveh was? It's huge. It didn't take three maybe. days to walk across. Three days to walk. Look at that. Someone. <laughs> Look at that. Okay, it takes three days to walk across. It takes three days to walk across New York, the state of New York. The state yeah. of New York is in New York. Now I have to see it. Look at that. I want to be precise. Now I'll have to look that up. Yeah. It takes three days to walk across one of the New Yorks. <laughs> okay, so Nineveh is huge. How far does does Jonah go, though, before people, everyone comes over to his side to his message? Well, if you read in chapter 3, he goes one day. He goes one day, and by the so end of that one day, words, the whole city is converted. Okay? So if you, if you take the city like this, and you bring it into thirds, he goes here, and he this is as far as he gets, and then the whole city is converted. So he goes preaching to these people, who then tell these people, who then tell these people. Now, isn't that what Jesus does? He preaches, he gets one day, right? He, t- he teaches the apostles, and then the apostles teach others, and then they teach others, and they teach others. So when you're talking about the sign of Jonah, how, why isn't it this that he is referring to? Okay, also, um, in the first part of the book, he descends. He descends to the city. He descends to the wharf. He descends to the boat. He descends to inside the boat, just like God descended. Okay, so this is uh, iconography that I like a lot. What's some iconography you guys like a lot? Thinking of uh, Old Testament, God shows up as a cloud by day and fire by night to guide Israel through the wilderness. Okay, and what does that mean? Like, what's the meaning of that? It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just like the image. I just, yeah, I mean, that was one of yeah. the first images that came to mind. Right? By day, it's this big cloud, cloud pillar of cloud, right? And then it's fire. Fire and cloud. It's very strange. Yeah. Fire and cloud. 
Now, are there any other times in Scripture where you think of uh, fire re- going up and down from heaven or smoke going up and down from heaven? Yeah, when they call on Baal. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Elijah. Yeah. Elijah. Yeah. Elijah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the sacrifices, right? Fire going Sacrifices. Okay. Yeah. Pentecost. Smoke and fire. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Fire comes down out of heaven. Yeah. Uh, the glory cloud that um, at the transfiguration... Uh, because there's this this mysterious cloud. Uh, okay, any others? How about Lasakas? You guys would like some iconography, <laughs> some imagery. The rider on the pale horse. Yeah. The rider on the pale horse. Yeah, there you go. That's a sticky idea. <clears throat> yeah, it's really funny to me when um, people, yeah, artists use that image. And most people don't recognize what it is in that famous uh, rap that you a few years ago. This is America. There's like a pale horse. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> I was like, ah! <laughs> Everyone's just looking at like the pop sensibilities of it. And I was yeah. like, ah, it's from Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Lewis said that nature gave the word uh, glory meaning for him. Okay? He knew the word, he'd used the word. But nature had given the word meaning, okay? He doesn't know where else he could have found one besides nature. You take a word like glory. Now, roughly, what does glory mean? What's the meaning of glory? It's hard to define. <laughs> it is hard to define, right? Now, what does it look like, though? Glory? Mm-hmm. Shining, right? Like a dawn. Uh, that's holy but yeah like a shining sun Like, and, and how did you guys all see the sunset earlier this week everybody was like blowing up Instagram with pictures of the sunset and it's that kind of thing glory um, around here I'm always struck by I've lived here my whole life but like to catch a glimpse suddenly of the of the snow covered mountains with the sun shining on them like I, I like turn to Gandalf I'm like let's go <laughs> every time it has this effect on me so there are other words like this um, I think love is one that works this way because you know it when you see it uh, glory you know it when you see it and so the more you look at nature, I think the more you learn uh, the iconography of Revelation, right? Um, can you guys think of what humble looks like when you see it in the world? Have you guys seen any humility lately? <laughs> well, maybe we have a whole other problem. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I'm sorry, I, I tend to do this in my classes. I, I, most of us don't think about it this way. Um, I had a student recently who was like, Mr. Class, be patient. I don't think, I've never thought about this in my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just they're honest. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's good. But if you think about it, right, think about how much you know about these words, for, like how much you learned from seeing it versus how much you actually learned from reading a dictionary. Well, and I think our culture has it like backwards. Like they want to see works upon works. Like mm-hmm. I, I, Christians and non-Christians alike would agree that like Mother Teresa, humble, definite lots of glory. Yeah. Uh, which I think, going back to iconography, is always um, ironic 
to me that she died right next to a day or her funeral was the same day as Princess Diana's. Yes. And it's like God literally. Yeah, because who had a greater funeral? Oh my gosh. And did people even know Mother Teresa died? No. A lot of people didn't even know that Mother Teresa had died. Because Princess Di had died in a car accident. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I ended up going to London right after that, and I mean, I could not believe the, the number of flowers that they put like at the outside their whatever house they had right downtown London. It was crazy. It's like I wanted all if I could have half the money <laughs> that people spend right now on these roses alone. But but why? But why? Right? She's the people's princess. There's all this. Uh, mythology around her, and here's Mother Teresa dying at the same time. And there's no state funeral for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how you see in life what we honor, what we consider glorious, and and how it doesn't compute with what God says is glorious. And, and he, li- I mean, I'm sure that there is some cosmic joke in the fact that they died very near one another. And the joke's always on us. Anyway, okay, sunsets. The vastness of the night sky, the sublimity of mountain landscape, all of these things taught Lewis that mere words, uh, what mere words could not. Remember, so what was his whole idea about the medieval cosmology? Remember, this was last semester. What, 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 how did he think we should use? He wasn't concerned necessarily with the medieval cosmology being true or not. He thought it was useful. Yeah. How did he think it was useful? Because there was always a God that came back to life and saved. Oh, and that's mythology. Yeah. But if you think of the cosmology where he said, "Go outside at night and look at the sky," oh. what did he want? To, what did he want that to? What was the effect he wanted that to have on man? How small we are. How small we are, right? <laughs> he wanted to humble him. He wanted to give people a sense of awe. So, as we go forward, what we're going to see in mere Christianity is we're going to see um, his distinct style really just come out in a wildly beautiful, fantastic way. Because if he's going to sit down and write talks for average British citizens during World War II, what kind of iconography do you think he's going to use? That's not our trouble. War. War, yep, he's going to mention the war, mm. exactly. What else might he use, right? Is he, how, and how might it be different from his university lectures? Well, he's going to have to appeal to the common man who didn't have a prep school Oxford education. Exactly. Okay? It's going to be rich in iconography. That's one of the things that we're going to see. And the reason, uh, the other reason, besides just the effect of iconography in his own life, he understands how powerful it is. To, to use images to express the meaning of words. Um, and he had an essay in God in the Dock called um, Dogma and Science or something. Something in Dogma and Science or Science and Dogma. And he expressed his opinion about what an apologist is. And what an apologist is is an interpreter. Now, what do you think he means by that? You know what? <laughs> Hold on. Enter. Scribble. Interpreter. <laughs> there we go. Fix it. Okay, he's an interpreter. What, what, what do you think he means by that, though? And, and, and what he wanted in his essay 
was more Christian ministers, more Christian theologians, anyone who deals with um, preaching the gospel, expressing the gospel, gospel, teaching it, they need to spend time learning how the basic principles of interpretation. How do you interpret things? Now, why, why do you guys think? Because it's the whole job to make opaque or high-minded theology accessible exactly. to the common man. Right. Right, like, um, does anyone know what the word propitiation means? I'm not going to insult you. Okay, what's propitiation? And how is it different, okay? How is it uh, different than justification? Yeah, see, and I mean, and this is where, um, this is really hard to stay out of. Because, like, I came from the low minded, low educated side of things, right? I'm always hearing about educated clergy. I'm not an educated clergy. But but what happens over time is you start to talk in shorthand. Okay? Well we're talking about propitiation, not justification, you say offhandedly. And my son, my fifteen year old son is like, what? <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah, okay. Okay, but um, everyone knows the courtroom explanation of justification, right? It, it, it's a sticky idea. You're in a courtroom, you're accused uh, your your attorney stands up and says his uh, you're declared not guilty in a courtroom where God is the judge because of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, he, his works are you know your works. He's taken his, he's now punished for you. You get his reward as a righteous person, and you're declared a righteous person. You're declared not guilty. Um, and this is like the courtroom thing that everyone's been using. Now that like that that whole thing is how you explain justification generally. I hate that explanation, which I'm not going to get into right now, um, because at, at the end of the day, we go home and we live with God. And having worked in a courtroom, nobody goes home at the end of the day to live with the judge. Okay, nobody gets in, nobody nobody is adopted into his house. <laughs> but it does it is helpful on one level. Propitiation is the turning away of wrath. Okay, so you're tied in the train tracks. And the train of God's wrath is bearing down upon you, and Superman jumps down right in front of the train at the last second, puts his hand out, and stops the train. That's propitiation. It's turning away the wrath. So when you put the blood on the on on, you take Christ's blood and you put it on the um, altar, it, it's turning away the wrath of God. And that's completely different than justification now, right? You can see. So it it, it, it is imperative that what you do when you're interpreting is you don't, so if you take jargon and then you interpret it down into like just educated speak, like highbrow speak, you're not actually getting it down to the kitchen table. Um, and whenever I work with guys teaching them how to preach, it's, it's my question, and, and Andrew, this was, he, pre, he wrote this whole sermon, he was so proud, he was so good. And I'm sitting in the back in there, and I'm listening, and he gets all done. He's so happy with himself, and I was like, "All right, I, I'm a, I'm a mom sitting at my kitchen table, and I have no idea what you just like. How, what does that have to do with me sitting at my kitchen table?" And he was like, "Well," and 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 it's the kind of thing that we don't think about, right? And, and Sproul said that if you can't explain something to a five-year-old, you don't understand it. So if you're if you're a, um, a physics major and you're studying how to put people into space, and you can't explain to a five-year-old you know, this concept of physics that your, your whole life is about, that you don't really understand it yourself. As soon as you can explain something to a five-year-old, now I don't mean to equate five-year-olds with moms sitting at a kitchen table, 
But what we what we have in the church are a lot right bedraggled, tired moms chasing little kids around, and they don't have a lot of time to sit there and listen to extremely complicated philosophical language. Um, especially now, like I even try to think about like, sermons, the fact that people have to get up and leave. So if I'm preaching now in the third portion of my sermon, and uh, somebody had to get up and go to the bathroom earlier, they may have no idea what I'm talking about. Now, I've only just recently thought of this idea, so it's going to take me a while to fix it. <laughs> but you've got to have these sermons that are, right? I mean, when you're interpreting it, you've got to think about your audience. And this is what we talk a lot about in rhetoric. Uh, you take this turn where you're not just thinking about the logic, you're not just thinking about the poetry, you're thinking about the people who are receiving it. And how do you best communicate to them? And C.S. Lewis was asked to write a book about the gospel for um, factory workers, and he was so indignant about this. He said, first off, I don't know anything about life in a factory. I, w- I would have no idea how to talk to those people. Um, and and, and um, frankly, I don't have time. Leave me alone. I'm sure there is someone else who knows both the gospel and what it's like to work in a factory. Um, so when you guys, uh, when you, do you guys experience this when you're explaining things to, say, your spouse or your kids or uh, an unbeliever, where you're trying to interpret complicated ideas into everyday language? Do you guys have any examples of where you've had to do this? Right, I mean, uh, we're doing the catechism, or the, the creed now, and Lewis wants to know what a virgin is. <laughs> Good question. Good question. <laughs> uh, we'll tell you in about three years. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's an unmarried woman. Yeah. There you go. Well, I think no, that, that is the key um, <laughs> is with that whole subject in children. Like studies have shown that if you just address it when they're young yeah. and keep addressing it in words they can understand and then as they get older you add to that definition mm-hmm. because you've been talking about it all along it's excellent. they have already bought into the idea that oh yeah we can talk about this it's mm-hmm. not a big deal whereas if you don't yeah. until you hit puberty and this is what I think happens in Christian families and churches where children are not in the service. Yeah. You're not ready for it. And then all of a sudden when you're a teenager, you're now now you're ready for it, go. And they've been like, well, they haven't practiced how to sit in a service. They mm-hmm. haven't practiced listening. And so because they can't understand, they check out. Mm-hmm. And then we end up with three quarters of Christian kids who go off to college losing their faith. Yeah. Yeah. Who don't, don't belong in the... Uh, <laughs> because they've never bought in from a young age yeah. that I belong to this group. Right. I am a part of yeah. this. And even though I don't understand everything that's going on, they see me as worthwhile enough to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's a great uh, point. And because you have to introduce the ideas uh, when they're younger. And you have to make things, right? The only way to make it not a taboo is by not making it taboo. <laughs> now, you don't go, like, way beyond what they can handle. Like, today's a great example. Like, we're going to be talking about homosexuality and sexual sin here, there, and everywhere. So I had to think very carefully about what I was going to say or not say. And, there, and believe it or not, I actually went out and cut out parts because I was like, well, first off, that's too much. And if I say that, the moms are not going to talk to me. 
Because <laughs> they got the little kids in the room, right? I mean, so but if you introduce the idea in, in, in a language that is appropriate to their age, then what you do is you, it, it's not weird to talk about it over time. What was your answer to Lewis? Uh, actually, it wasn't me who had answered the question. <laughs> but that also goes for, like, parents shouldn't be skipping portions of the Old Testament. Yes. Like, on the way to church today, we just read, we heard about Dinah, and mm-hmm. then her brothers enacting. Mm-hmm. But the translation we had this week used the word rape, whereas oh, yeah. uh, some translations will just say violated. Yeah. yeah, or harmed. Right. Mm-hmm. right, right. And that one, everyone just passes off. They hear a word like rape, and it's like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, and so um, if you're going to, because we're going to see all of this. This may seem like a sidebar. But later in the talks, he's, he talks about sexual ethics. He talks about marriage. And, and, and it's really funny because C.S. Lewis was a bachelor at the time. <laughs> um, and he wanders into an area that everybody thought was funny. He wandered into it. He's like a British gentleman trying to talk about sexual immorality <laughs> in a British gentlemanly way. But I think he does a great job of, I mean, like, you could sit around your kitchen table listening to this on the radio, and there's no problem. Yeah. Um, some Americans were a little scandalized. Uh, but at, the, at, at that time, they tended to be more puritanical. Um, but, what, but, you know, the big idea here is figuring out how to take complex ideas or ideas that are difficult or uh, adult and making them easy to digest in small portions in, in, in a way that uses imagery. Um, right? I mean, because anytime you have kids, you're like, okay, now we're going to explain the birds and the bees using imagery. You're like, oh, no, no, not that, no. Yeah, no, I'm going to need a few days. <laughs> I remember the first time I was like, I'm really going to have to think about what I'm going to say about this. Um, okay, so. The iconography is a big deal. Um, and the iconography in history, uh, or I'm sorry, in, re- in natural revelation is a big deal. And, th- and that's called, what we've called it, natural uh, revelation. There's another name for it, natural law. These ideas are not exactly the same, but they're so interconnected that it's kind of like, um, it's hard to have one without the other. So, so um, if you look at nature, okay? Uh, if you go if you go outside and you're walking in the woods and you see a male moose and a female moose, okay, then you see a male squirrel and a female squirrel. You see a male dog and a female dog. You go back to the farm and there's a male cow and a female cow. What what do you ultimately learn from nature? That there has to be two. That there has to be two, kinds. right? And that's what Adam figured out. He sees two by two they come to me. There's pairs, and I am, I do not have one. Um, I do not have a helper suitable. He says. And, and, and so you see this kind of thing, and you see how natural revelation teaches you um, the, the way God wants things to work. Um, another one is, the, like I, I've mentioned this before, is you sit down at a table, and everything on the table is dead. Okay, now, that's not usually how we think about it. Again, I'm sorry. Sorry to come at it like this, but all, it's all dead, right? The cow's dead. The vegetables are dead. Everything's dead. And we're not going to eat it and get life. And, and so from death comes life, and right? And you see, okay, I, I take this seed that is this dead shell, this thing, and I put it in the ground, and what comes up? Life. So anything you put in the ground comes back different than the way you put it there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I defy you to find something that, that, that doesn't happen to. Even rocks, you put it under there, and 
after a time, it will not come up the same. It will not be the same. When you bury things and bring them back, they don't come back the same. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever does. And so you, you spend enough time around this, and, and there is a sort of practical horse sense in which you look at nature and you learn these things. Um, what I find is that uh, we've gotten, we're so far from nature that we don't learn these lessons. Um, it's like my cousins. Nobody needs to explain the birds and the bees to my cousins. They all grew up on a pig farm. Um, and, they, and they were a little ribald with that whole uh, situation. But nobody ever had to, their parents were always laughing about how the fact nobody had to explain anything to them. You spend half an hour on a farm, everybody figures out what goes on. <laughs> and so this natural law, okay, um, and, and this is a big deal. Um, if you go around the cultures of the world, do, do people's laws, right, if, you, if when the Westerners came, I think they make too big a deal out of how shocked they were by how different people were. I, I, I think that there was a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. it, what's fascinating to me is I read a book about these Portuguese who um, were trying to circumnavigate the world, and they get to India, and there's several different kingdoms that they think are Christians, and they go to their temple, and for a long time they thought they were Christians, but they weren't. They were like Hindus, and there were um, these other religions, and, and, but, but they thought they were Christians. Now, why? Why would they do that? I, and, and that part of the historical record, I was like, can you stop and talk about that? Right? No, they go and they find Muslims and they find uh, savages and, and they're, they're horrified by what they find. But then there's all these other cultures where they mistake them for Christians. They think they're Prester John out there in Africa. Hmm. Now, why? Why did they go there? And, and they thought that these weird dressed people with their weird buildings and their weird food are actually more like us than not. Why did they think that? Hmm. Why, why did they make that determination? Because in their theology, God created everyone, and, and it's all descended from the same Adam and Eve. And yeah, and, and, and here's a yeah, question: If you had a, if you had a, like a truly faithful um, Muslim, okay, and a tr like a really faithful Muslim and a really faithful Jew and a really faithful priest, do you think they could sit down and have some? in a sense, dialogue about how faith works. Um, because I, I've recently started reading books by faith leaders who aren't Christians, simply in this idea of just seeing how to take, to, to sort of, I, guess, I suppose, challenge my own paradigm. Because um, Kayim Potok is a novelist. He's fantastic. If, if you are raising super conservative Christian kids and they're struggling with worldliness, Go and read Kohen Potok because he's constantly dealing with this idea of how do we reconcile our traditions with modern world, <laughs> and, and he's a, he's a, you know it's always Hasidic Jews, so they're not Christians, but it's very helpful to learn these things because of this. Okay, there there are some similarities in culture. There's similarities in law. Everybody thinks murder is bad. Um, what you find are people have different reasons for justifying. Right, you go to a place and they have and they have duels. Everyone's like, "Why is everyone okay with murder?" And they're all horrified. They're like, "This isn't murder. This is a duel." <laughs> and you're like, "I don't know. It looks like murder to me." <laughs> but they have a complex ethical way of explaining what they're doing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, and, and you have some stories in history where there is a big clash. Uh, you know, in, in India, they they used to throw the wives of the the dead guy on the funeral pyre. <laughs> and the English had to get them to stop doing that. Now, that, that, but that's an example. Were there other things that the Indians 
when, when, the Amer or when the British went there that they found to be common. Yeah, there's all kinds of things. We, 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 we have a caste system. <laughs> we, we, we don't have multiple lives. They have all these things. And all of this is called natural law, what he calls the Tao. So he's going to talk a lot about this. Um, can you guys think of some other things? Like what, what in cultures tend to be legally, like when it comes to ethics and law, what, what tends to be similar? Say like property rights. Yeah, yeah. property rights. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Not always, but yeah. yeah, there's some system in which we determine who owns what. Yeah. yeah. You never just go to a place where everybody it's like, oh, there's no system here of any kind for personal property. And they all recognize some kind of communal aspect. Yes. Even the Mayflower survivors who got the the Native Americans recognized what they were trying to do, even mm. though they didn't understand each other, and then came and helped them out. Mm. Because they saw they were trying mm -hmm. to be a community. Oh, we have our community. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it was the fact that the, there were so many white people coming so quickly, spreading so fast. If they would have just come and had a few tribes on the coast, right? What's a few more tribes amongst a bunch of other tribes? But when they come and they start taking, like... <laughs> whole states worth of land, it's a little different, right? They could tell that there was something different there. Um, so this is C.S. Lewis's big thing, okay? The Tao, the natural law. Um, and, and he thinks that this is a form of natural revelation, okay? Um, so you, you add this to the iconography and we start to see what he's going to do in, in mere Christianity. Uh, the other ones that we've mentioned before, one is uh, the natural revelation of history itself. What was his argument about that? Right? Remember, he, he wrote an essay called Myth Became Fact. Um, and what, what, what was his argument? Do you guys remember? Myth Became Fact. Why do they mention Pontius Pilate in the Creed? To connect it to real history. Yeah, because what we're talking about is not, does not reside in the world of myth. Right. What we're talking not about resides in the world of facts, right. historical facts. You can go to secular historians and you, you know who Pontius Pilate is. You know where he was stationed before he went to Jerusalem. You know where he was stationed after. And you know what family, um, Praetorian family that he came from. Um, so this idea that, so you couple this with mythology. What was also his argument from mythology? How does mythology work as natural revelation? Balder the Beautiful is dead, is dead. I remember. Similar to the Tao. All of these ideas are similar. So, how many societies have a story about a flood? All of them. <laughs> Several. <laughs> yes, all of them. Okay? So, if, if uh, you go to the Pacific Northwest and there's tribes and they have a story about a local flood and you go to South. South Africa, and they have a story about a flood. What does that tell you over, over time? Well, there was actually a flood. It was right? a world flood. Uh, cultures where they have, um, how many myths can you guys think of, if you study mythology at all, where there's some person steals a gift from heaven and brings it down and gives it to men on earth, and it causes all kinds of problems? Like all of them. Yeah, like all of them, right? <laughs> so his argument was that, same as the law, the law the fact that so many cultures have different laws that are similar to one another and so many myths that are similar to one another proves the true story. Okay? 
All of these things are arguments for the, the Christian story, the Christian Bible, Christian uh, view of reality. Um, and so all of this uh, goes into the same... Um, sorry, I got distracted by looking down. All of this stuff is what he's going to be doing. He's going to be using icons. He's going to be using the Tao. He's going to be using history. He's going to be using myth. Okay? And given um, who he is, do you think it's going to be more stereological and logical over here? Or do you think it's going to be more poetic? Or is it going to be what? What combination do you think it's going to be? I think it's going to be both. Both, right? Because remember, um, our, our reason is the organ of meaning. No. Reason is the organ of truth. Imagination is the organ of meaning. So you tell people what's true, and then you show them that it's true, okay? And, and if you go back also and you remember the idea of uh, the correspondence theory of truth, if, if, if something is true, it has to correspond to some reality in, in, in the world. And, and as we go into mere Christianity, this is what he's, these are all the things he's going to be using um, to make some, right? And in an introductory book on Christianity, he talks about the triune God, and that is not usually how people do it. Okay, the, tri- the Trinity is not a doctrine you usually give uh, as an introductory doctrine. But he does it because he's C.S. Lewis, because he's not <laughs> afraid to take on and interpret very difficult things for everyday people. And he's not a professional theologian. He, he was not attempting to write professional theology. He knows exactly where he's at. And so later on, people get very angry and don't like him and, and bash him for this reason. But they, they accuse him of trying to do something he wasn't actually trying to do. He wasn't writing professional academic theology for, for academics. He was writing uh, basic theology for everyday people. Okay, you guys have any questions? All right, so what I'm going to do is send out links on Monday um, with a few questions. And we'll watch C.S. Lewis Doodle is, is the videos. And then at the top of the, the title of the videos, they actually have the corresponding chapter, if you'd rather read the book or do both. Um, because as far as I understand, it's the full text of the book, but they follow the pattern of the radio addresses. Okay, but the guy also doodles. So we'll do two videos a week. They're like 15 minutes each. Um, and then occasionally we'll read out of that orange book that you guys have. Um, I'm sure you have it. Keep your magic. Mm-hmm. Right? I need to get it. Okay. Um, it, is the assignments during the week or to watch the videos, or we're watching them in here? No, no, no. We'll watch them during the week, and yeah, there'll be yeah. some questions. And that, then come uh, here. Yeah, I have a reading guide for Mere Christianity, and I'll just add some of the questions. And then that way it just helps you process yeah. what you're watching. And then when we come here on Sundays, we'll just talk about it. Cool. And we'll go very slowly, because I think it's important I mean, for us to understand these doctrines, but then also to be able to explain them well. Because if you go through this, you'll learn how to explain basic theology pretty easily. Okay. Cool. Dexter, you want to pray for us? <clears throat> Father God, thank you for your, your revelation through nature and through, and through learned men. And I pray that we uh, would go forth and, and, and uh, seek you deeper and dive into who you are and how you've revealed, your us, revealed yourself through us to us through many things. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks, guys.